Our, our sermon text, as I've already said, is Psalm 35. We go through the Psalms uh, in order every first Sunday of the month normally. Uh, so our text is Psalm 35 this morning. It's a little bit of a longer text, so if you're not able to stand for that long, that's okay. But if you're able to, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Psalm 35, a psalm of David. He writes, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life, from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open their mouths, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire, let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness, and of your praise all the day long. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. 
Let's uh, pray and ask God's blessing upon his, his uh, word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would give us grace, work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is, this is one of those uh, psalms. It's a, another psalm of imprecation. An imprecatory psalm. That's one of those. It's not the first one that we've seen so far in, in our study through the psalms. Uh, and it, sometimes these kinds of psalms are hard for us to identify with. At least out here uh, in, in the Western world, in the, in the, the uh, part of the world that's been influenced so much by, by the gospel. You know, many of us don't have, um, I would say none of us that I know of, have enemies seeking to kill us for the sake of, of righteousness. Uh, that's not the case elsewhere in, in, in many places. In many places, they would read this kind of a psalm and have no problem whatsoever understanding what David is talking about. They would have no problem understanding the need to pray this kind of a prayer that we find in this psalm. You know, most of us don't, don't know what it's like, and so we have trouble, I think, understanding imprecation. Um, the psalms of imprecation where the righteous call upon the Lord to judge the wicked can sometimes make us a little bit uncomfortable, can't they? I think you read these psalms, like Psalm 35, and, and you almost wonder, is this okay for me to pray this and put these words in my mouth uh, in prayer or in song? Um, after all, didn't Jesus in John or Matthew rather, 544 tell us to love our enemies? Aren't we to pray for those who persecute us? We certainly are. Does this kind of a psalm contradict that? Are we being told two conflicting things? I would say they, they, they don't actually conflict, but sometimes on the surface you can understand why some might think that's the, the case. We sometimes, I think, have a hard time reconciling those two things. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and yet at the same time we find these, these psalms and prayers of imprecation on the lips of, of David, on the lips of the Lord's anointed. And again, the psalms, what do they do? Uh, they, they kind of tune our hearts back to where they should be. They, they force us to put the words of faith on our lips and say things that you might not normally think to say on your own. And this is one of those cases. So I think, I think those who would say these kinds of prayers are not for the church today are, are well-meaning but misguided. And I think we're going to see, I hope we're going to see this morning at least a few reasons why that's the case why these psalms are appropriate for the church even today as long as they're properly understood. Now, other things in this psalm that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, at times is we read such things as throughout the psalm, in all three sections of the psalm, David claims innocence, doesn't he? David is claiming to have clean hands, so to speak, in this situation. His enemies are setting traps for him in, in verse 7, Twice, he says, they do so, quote, without cause. And he even speaks of his own righteousness in verse 27. We, I think we tend to feel uncomfortable talking in that kind of a, of a language because to us, I think sometimes that kind of a thing sounds like it's self-righteous, doesn't it? And certainly the Bible does not promote self-righteousness. Here in our psalm, as elsewhere, David, David contrasts himself with the wicked. He contrasts himself with the wicked as he is righteous and they are not. He, in the psalm, he's the righteous sufferer. They, the ones afflicting him, are the wicked. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, as I know many of you are, you'll remember that that, that contrast between, between the righteous and the wicked, it's found throughout the Psalms. And it starts even in the very first book, or the very first psalm of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is, is nothing else if not a contrast, a very stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2, a very familiar psalm, it says, Blessed is the man who does what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. talks about day and night, and it paints a day and night difference, doesn't it, between the, the wicked and the righteous. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is, is like a tree that bears much fruit in its season. And whatever he does, verse 3, whatever he does, he prospers. But the psalmist points out in the latter half of that psalm that, verse 4, the wicked are not so. The wicked, verse 5, will not stand in the way in the day of judgment. Verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. He's over and over again hammering that point home. We are to see a difference between the wicked and the righteous. And the Psalms, they don't promote an attitude of self-righteousness. If we, if we take it that way, we're misunderstanding it. They don't promote or teach hypocrisy, but they do absolutely teach us to choose which side we're on, to be sure of which side that we're on, either the righteous or the wicked. There's no blurring of that line. You're one or the other. And the imprecatory psalms like the one we're looking at this morning, they really go beyond just taking sides, don't they? That might make a lot of people uncomfortable as it is, taking sides and, and, and claiming to be on the right side, on the side of the righteous instead of the wicked. But psalms of imprecation, prayers of imprecation, don't just acknowledge that the wicked won't stand in the day of judgment. But imprecation goes a step beyond that. And it's actually praying to the Lord, to the judge, the righteous judge of all the earth, for his judgment to come against them. And even really, if you think about what the psalm does over and over again, David even tells God, promises God, that he's going to praise his name when he does judge the wicked. David in this psalm is not embarrassed by the justice of God. David is not embarrassed in the slightest by God's righteous, just judgment of the wicked. In fact, he, it sounds strange to say it, maybe to our ears, he rejoices over it. He promises God that he will praise his name for it in this psalm and elsewhere. And that, that vow or promise that, that David gives to God to praise his name for his just judgment of the wicked, who are David's enemies in this case, he does so at least three times in our psalm. In Psalm 35, and he does so at the end of each section of the psalm. This psalm, if you want to outline it or divide it up, it can be divided pretty neatly into three more or less equal, equal parts or sections. Verses 1 through 10 forms the first part. Verses 11 to 18 form the second. And verses 19 to 28 form the final section. And, and each, each one of those three kind of equal sections... You know, normally you would have expected me to put an outline on the back of your bulletin and have section 1 be point A, section 2 be point you know, B or point 2 whatever and so on. 
But each, each one of these sections in the psalm doesn't, it's not forming a, a logical argument from point one to point two to point three as we typically might be uh, used to hearing or reading. But what he does is he kind of restates the exact same argument and reinforces it and intensifies it, intensifies that same argument or flow of thought from one section to the next. So rather than outlining it that way, uh, we're going to look at, at the flow of his whole argument that he makes three times in, in this psalm. So in each section of, that, of this psalm, David does three things. He makes his complaint and his prayer to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies. In each section, David proclaims in some way his innocence. In other words, he states that his enemies wrongfully pursued his life. And each section there, in that section, he promises and ends the section with a promise of praise to the Lord for his deliverance from his enemies and God's destruction of those wicked enemies. So we're going to look at three things this morning from the psalm. First, David's prayer of imprecation. David's prayer of imprecation. Number two, David's proclamation of his innocence. And three, David's promise of praise to the Lord. So first, first David's prayer of imprecation. Part of his prayer is a plea for deliverance. That part we get. When you're in trouble and you ask God, whatever that trouble may be, whether it be persecution, uh, as Rob prayed, financial trouble, health trouble, whatever the case may be, uh, your first thing, to, the first thing we should do, not the last resort, but the first resort should be prayer. We, we look to God, even if we know what the solution is, even if there's, you know, if it's a disease and you know the doctors have a cure, you don't go to the doctor for the cure and then just in case to hedge your bet, you pray, right? You pray. You seek God's face first in prayer. And David in the first three verses writes, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. It sounds like a courtroom, right? Like, an, like stand up for me, argue for me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler. You know, protect me. Rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. The idea of the spear or a pike is something where you would hold it out and it would keep the enemy at length, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be a little pocket knife or a little knife. It's a spear. It's, it doesn't let them come near. It keeps them at beyond arm's length. Now, I don't think we have trouble thinking of that. You know, keeping us safe from harm is one thing. That's not where David stops. David isn't just praying a foxhole prayer. You know, get me out of this, God, and I'll praise you. That's part of it, but he goes beyond that. He doesn't just cry out to the Lord for help uh, when his back is against the wall, but he actually prays for judgment upon his enemies. In verses 4 to 6, he goes on to say, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Now we're getting into, into, into judgment territory here. Let them be chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. That, if you think about that last phrase there, that, that's a terrifying picture. I mean, the angel of the Lord... Uh, if, you, if you read through your Old Testament, you'll often find the angel of the Lord doing a couple things. One, bringing message of, tidings of good news to God's people. Part of that good news, though, is often judgment upon the wicked. 
And very often the angel of the Lord was the agent of that destruction, and the agent of that judgment. You know, to speak of the angel of the Lord going after his enemies is to speak of their destruction. It's a terrifying thought. And think about them. It's a picture of the wicked fleeing before the angel of the Lord. And he says, let their way be dark and slippery. They don't know where they're going, and they're going to hit the proverbial banana peel or grease spot at any moment, and that's it. That's a scary place to be. It kind of brings to mind Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, where Moses writes, Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Now, the, the Lord's vengeance upon the wicked who persecute the people of God can often seem slow to us, can it? We wonder, what, you know, what's taking so long? You know, the Psalms are filled with, even this psalm, in verse 17, David says what? How long, O Lord, will you look on? In the book of Revelation, the martyrs in heaven have that exact phrase on there, how long, O Lord? They're praying for God's judgment upon those who took their lives. And so the, to the wicked also, I think it seems sometimes as if the day of judgment's not going to come. It's a twisted kind of logic, isn't it? They, they, they kind of read God's apparent inactivity as he doesn't care. As judgment hasn't come yet, so it's not going to come. And what does the Apostle Peter tell them? Ah, you forget. He has judged the entire world once before by a flood. He's done it before. He won't do it the same way again, but he most certainly will. They deliberately forget that God has judged and will judge again. And that verse in Deuteronomy, what does it say in the King James? I kind of like how that puts it. It says it will come in due time. There is a time God has set for the judgment of the wicked. And it may seem slow, but it will come in God's time. And also, what does that last part of the verse in Deuteronomy say? Their doom comes swiftly. It may seem like it's a long way off, like it takes forever, but when it comes, it's going to come in a hurry. It's going to come swiftly. You might know, if you're familiar with that passage at all, that that's, that seemingly obscure little verse in Deuteronomy was the, was the sermon text for what many regard as the most famous sermon in American history, by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon was preached in 1741 in a little town called Enfield, Connecticut, and is often credited as being the spark that lit the Great Awakening here in the United States. And that text, I think, points out something that's important for us to have in mind for a right understanding of Psalm 35 and other imprecation psalms such as this. Think about this. This psalm and prayer, it's a prayer. Most of the psalms have some aspect of prayer to them. It's not the same thing as David taking vengeance. I think that's where we get uncomfortable. We think, oh, it sounds very vengeful. You know, it's David taking... No, David, in many cases in, in his history that we have in Scripture, David could have taken vengeance into his own hands. And he refused over and over again. He refused to do it. But what did he do? He prayed things like this. He wrote psalms like this to put these kinds of words on our mouths, on our lips, and in our hearts, and in our minds, to see how we deal with these things. We don't take vengeance 
into our own hand. What did that text in Deuteronomy say? Vengeance is whose? Mine. Not ours. The Lord's. And recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. God has got this. God is going to take care of this. He's got it under control. We look to him in his time. The psalm of David here, this prayer is not David taking vengeance. And praying this way, he's actually doing just the opposite. He's leaving vengeance in God's hands, isn't he? Instead of taking vengeance into his own hands, he's entrusting God to both save him from his enemies and to judge the wicked. But in his time and in his way, even if that time and that way aren't something that David understands, he leaves it in the hands of God, the just judge of all the earth. Well, that brings us to our second point, David's proclamation of innocence. Throughout our psalm, David not only prays for God to deliver him from his enemies and to judge those enemies, he also maintains that he's innocent. He maintains his innocence in this matter. Now, David is not here saying that he was sinlessly perfect. In no way, shape, or form does Psalm 35 and David's words in it are they to be taken as David claiming to be sinless in any way, shape, or form. The same man who wrote Psalm 35 wrote Psalm 32. The same man wrote Psalm 51, these great psalms of repentance and seeking forgiveness from the Lord. David knew full well he was a sinner. What did he say in Psalm 51? He was conceived in sin. He's been a sinner since the very first second that he was alive in his mother's womb. David full, fully knew that he had no righteousness of his own with which to be able to stand before a holy God on the day of judgment. David in this psalm is not saying, I'm a good guy, therefore God is going to accept me. But those bad people out there, it's not what he's saying at all. David, just like you and I, if you're a believer this morning, was justified by grace alone, the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ the Messiah alone. Period. This is not David being self-righteous. But what David does in this psalm is, he maintains that his enemies, who were trying to kill him, were doing so unjustly. He has not done anything to provoke them, or to bring this situation upon himself. For verse 7 he writes, Twice, without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause... They dug a pit for my life. He's saying before God and man, whatever it is that they're doing this for, I didn't, I didn't do anything to bring it on myself. I did not sin against them to bring this enemy upon myself. Now, we, we don't know. There's no, you know, the heading sometimes in the Psalms will tell you a specific situation. Here's, here's what was happening that caused David to write the Psalm. All we get here is really one word in, in Hebrew or two in English of David. We just know who wrote it. We don't know what his situation was, but it's probably not that hard to imagine that it could have had something to do with Saul trying to kill him, which is a pretty prominent theme in the book of 1 Samuel. You might know that David had more than one opportunity to take God's vengeance into his own hands against Saul, right? I can think of at least two two occasions where he could have killed Saul, but he refused to do so. One of those situations is 1 Samuel chapter 26, In verses 7 through 11, we read this. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, 
And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. See, I'm not going to miss. The spear is right by his head. You know, let me do it. I'll do it for you and I won't miss. I won't need a second try. It'll be done. You'll never have to worry about it again. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. They took the spear, didn't use it on Saul. What did he take the spear for? Why did he take the water? Just show Saul... This look familiar? Oh, you had this right by your head. I could have put this through your head. He basically, look, I mean you no harm, and you seek my life. So what does he say? Now, who was the Lord's anointed? This is a confusing thing, isn't it? God had rejected Saul. Saul was the Lord's anointed until, until God rejected him, because he had rejected the word of the Lord. But in David's eyes, he was still the Lord's anointed. Now, was Saul righteous? No. David, David doesn't say he's really a good guy. Uh, we're all just misunderstanding. It's just a big misunderstanding. No, he says, what does he say? Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his, in other words, God might kill him on the spot on his own. If God does it, let God do it. Or his day will come to die or he'll go down into battle and perish. God's going to judge him. David was under no delusion that Saul was some righteous guy who David just had a bad misunderstanding with, and they really should have just lived and let lived. But he refused to take the life of Saul. Now, that, there's a lot of things we could say about that, but one of the things is the idea of the Lord's anointed. That, that idea is misused many times and in many ways in our day by pastors who manipulate and try to use their authority and misuse their authority and abuse the people in their church, they'll say, oh, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. Don't speak against the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed is the word for Messiah. No pastor is the Messiah. No one in a church is the Messiah except the Messiah. But what David is saying is the Lord's anointed, now who knows how much this David knew or understood, but the Lord's anointed was a picture of whom? Christ. For him to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed, even though it was someone like Saul who was a terrible picture of Christ, yet he was still in some sense a picture of the one that was to come. And David wasn't going to strike the Lord's anointed. David could have easily killed Saul, and all of his problems would have gone away, or at least so we might think. And think about what Abishai said. You know, it makes sense, doesn't it? Abishai tried to read the tea leaves of God's providence. I mean, if God didn't want you to kill him, I mean, he put the spear right by his head. He, you know, he put me with you. You know, he, he gave you a wingman. You know, somebody that is good with a spear, especially from a two-inch distance. You know, I, I, can, I can do this. You don't even have to get your hands dirty. 
If anybody, you notice he didn't say here, David, kill him. He says, I'll do it and I won't miss. If anybody asks, you didn't do it. I'm a soldier. That's my job. I'm supposed to protect you. you know? and, and it even says in the text that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon everybody. You're not supposed to walk into an army encampment and have everybody you know, sawing logs so loud that nobody wakes up to where you can walk right up to the king. I mean, the Secret Service guys failed, right? Uh, but David, David refused to do that. He took the water jar, he took the spear to prove to Saul he hadn't done, he had no harm in mind against him. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 25, it talks about uh, suffering innocently. It says, but if when you do good, not bad, if you do good and suffer for it, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this suffering righteously, you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You catch that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So if you and I suffer, let it be for doing good, for righteousness' sake, and not for doing evil. For in doing so, you're following in Christ's steps. Nothing is out of the ordinary, nothing is wrong. It means you really are following Christ when the world hates you. Well, that brings us to our third point, our final point of the psalm, is David's promise of praise. His promise of praise. Each of those three sections is marked at the end by David promising to praise and thank God for his deliverance from his enemies. Verses 9 to 10, the end of the first section, David says, Then, you know, once God judges the wicked, his enemies, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Verse 18, the end of the second section, I will thank you in the great congregation in the mighty throng, I will praise you. And then he closes the psalm in verses 27 to 28. He says, let those, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord, not great is David, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Look at that, that verse. Great is the Lord who does what? Who delights. Delights in the welfare of his servant. Did David probably feel like God was delighting in his welfare and his well-being at the moment? When things were not going well? When his life was in danger wrongly by, by a wicked king who was supposed to be leading God's people? No, I, I don't think he, he probably did. But he says he will. He knew that in some way God would deliver him. And he says, great is the Lord, not just who takes care of the welfare of his servant, 
God rejoices, delights in the welfare of his servant. God delights in our well-being. What does Romans say about, you know, how shall he who gave up his only son for us, how shall he not along with him give us all things? If God has given up his son for our salvation, as the word tells us, as this table tells us, it may not always seem like God is giving us all things or delighting uh, in, the, in our welfare, in our well-being, but he really does. None of his promises in Christ failed to us. And let, let this psalm, let this third part of the psalm be a lesson to each one of us. When the Lord answers our prayers, what should we do? Praise him. When he answers our prayers, do we praise him? Do we give him the thanks that he so richly deserves? Do we thank and praise him in the congregation while we're together? Charles Spurgeon writes, Praise, personal praise, public praise, perpetual praise, should be the daily revenue of the King of Heaven. Praise, public praise, personal praise, perpetual, all the time praise. That's, that should be what's coming into his kingdom. What's coming, it's, it's his due. Praise is the Lord's due. So you and I, we don't need to be uncomfortable about this imprecatory psalm or any of the imprecatory psalms that we see. We don't need to hesitate to take them upon our lips in prayer or in song as long as we do so with a right understanding of them. We must not confuse imprecation with vengeance. We must not confuse imprecation with God being our attack dog and going after people that we just don't like. We must be sure that if we are suffering, we're suffering unjustly. That we aren't suffering for our sins, for our wrongdoing to others. That we're suffering for the sake of righteousness. And also, the chief goal of our imprecation, if we, if we pray that way, must be what? Three times in the psalm, it, it tells us over and over again. The chief goal is not our own convenience, not our own comforts, but the glory of Christ. The glory of God and the praise of his name. You might know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself actually quotes this psalm, as he does many of the psalms. In John 15:25, he quotes this psalm. And he tells us that it's, it's fulfilled, and it was being fulfilled by the world and the unbelieving Jews hating him. They persecute me unjustly. That's, that's the verse that's quoted in John 15:25. So what does that tell you about Psalm 35? As uncomfortable as the idea of imprecation might make you at times, this psalm is ultimately a portrait of Jesus Christ, who is in some sense the ultimate prayer of this psalm. The Lord's anointed, Christ himself. This is a picture of Christ enduring the hatred of the wicked and doing so for our salvation to deliver us from our sins. So let us not be ashamed to follow in Christ our Lord's steps, let us entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The Lord will most certainly gather and defend his church. He will deliver his people and judge the wicked in his time, in due time. He does delight in our welfare in Christ. And he will deliver us to the glory of his name. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, these, for the psalms. We thank you for these psalms that... As uh, Spurgeon said of David, that uh, his heart was out of tune more often than his harp, and we much more so than he. And we thank you for giving us these psalms to tune our hearts more and more to the way they should be, 
that they tune us to look to you first and foremost. They tune us to look to you for deliverance, to not put our, tr- our trust in our own devices, our own strength, or anyone else's except Christ's. And they tune us to sing your praises and to give you thanks in the great congregation whenever, every time that you answer and hear from heaven. And we ask that you would give us grace to think on these things, to think more and long upon Christ and how he suffered unjustly at the hand of wicked men, that we might not be discouraged when it happens to your church, even to us ourselves. Help us to be, to be looking unto Christ who suffered uh, at the hands of wicked men for our salvation and give us grace to be more and more conformed to his image and to look to you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.